Please turn to Mark 4, 35 through 41. Jesus calms the storm. As the evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out, leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat and it began to fill the water. Jesus was sleeping in the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Good morning, church. Situated here. If, uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, which is kind of crazy because I've been here four and a half months, but uh, that's the times we live in. Uh, I'm <clears throat> my name is John, one of the pastors here, and uh, yeah, a little crazy. Get my, there we go. Um, so yeah, the, our passage this morning that we're going we're gonna to be going through, um, I kind of want to just set some context before we get into this passage. The uh, last few weeks, really two weeks, as we've been going through this, as Char's been teaching, is like one full day, one really full day. The way Mark tells this story, Mark's, uh, he's pretty... He's a pretty good storyteller. <clears throat> and this is one crazy full day, if you think about it. It all started with a tense confrontation with the religious leaders. They're accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed. And then there's some tension with his family. Then he started teaching at the Sea of Galilee, and the crowds came in droves, so much so that he had to get onto a boat to go just offshore to speak to them. He'd used the, the water like, an, like a, a platform and the shore like an amphitheater. He preaches all day, teaches all day, and he's tired. Needless to say, Jesus is tired. That, that's where we find ourselves in this passage. Last week, Char talked about the inevitability of the kingdom, this, this parable of the seeds and the sower, and uh, the idea that the kingdom doesn't always look like we think it should. It may look insignificant, may look uh, like it's not doing anything, but it's inevitable. I think today our passage is, uh, it's more than just a cute Sunday school story. This is more than just a story uh, about Jesus doing some miracle. It is that, uh, but I think Mark has more in mind in the way that he lined up this narrative. I think this is in picture what the parables last week were in word. 
So let's look at this story. It's, it's, like I said, Jesus is teaching. He's on a boat, and he's been preaching, teaching all day. He's exhausted. Uh, and yet still, Jesus has his mission in mind. Still, he's thinking of the mission. He tells his disciples that we are going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Fascinating note in and of itself, and we'll look at this more next week, but the other side of the Sea of Galilee was not Jewish territory. It was about as unclean and as Gentile as you can get. We're talking cemeteries, pigs, demons. Jesus is on a mission. He's going to the other side. And for the most part, I mean, this is fascinating, because the most, for the most part, the Jewish people were not a seafaring people. They didn't spend a lot of time on the water. But fortunately, like a third of Jesus' disciples, uh, they had been professional fishermen. So they would have been very comfortable, very confident on the water. And apparently, our exhausted Jesus was comfortable and confident also. We find him asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat as the storm breaks out. Ironically, this is the only place in the Gospels that we hear of Jesus sleeping. The only time that we hear of Jesus sleeping is during a storm. This scene shows a complete trust in God in the midst of adversity. It's like the, the parable that we looked at last week, the farmer who trusts that God is at work no matter what, in spite of all the obstacles and any adversity. So let's look at this a little bit. I think as I was reading, as I was studying this passage this week, one of the clear things that showed up to me is this hyperlink, this clear link between Jonah, the story of Jonah, and this story. The way Mark put it together, specifically in Mark's gospel, uh, is a very clear uh, hyperlink. Just think about it for a second. Just, just think about the story. Where else do you find a prophet who has a mission from God asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm? Mark's very intentionally using language right out of Jonah to tell the story. Both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat. Both boats were overtaken by a storm. The descriptions of the storms are almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah were asleep. In both stories, the sailors woke up the sleeper and said, we're going to die. And in both cases, there was a miraculous divine intervention that, and the sea was calmed. Further, in both stories, the sailors then became even more terrified than they were before the storm was calmed. Mark clearly has these two stories. Uh, he's connecting them intentionally. It, there's a couple clear differences. Jonah is in the storm because of his disobedience. Jesus is in the storm because of his obedience. He's actually following the leading of his father. He did only what he saw the father doing. He's following the leading of the father to go to the other side, yet there's a storm. The other clear difference here between the story of Jonah and Jesus is that in the midst of the storm, Jonah, if you remember, Jonah tells the sailors, basically, 
there's only one thing we can do. There's only one solution. If I perish, if I die, you survive. If I die, you live, so throw me over. That's not exactly how our story goes today. Or is it? We have the benefit of knowing the whole story. We know where this is going. And if you take a step back and you look at the story of Jesus, uh, in his own words, he says that he, that he is one greater than Jonah. He will be thrown into the great storm of sin and rebellion once for all, and he will descend to hell in the grave for three days, defeat the powers of the storm once and for all. So there, I mean, it is a very clear analogy there. So as I read this, this, our passage today, there's three key movements that I see happening in this story. There's the plea, the request of the disciples, there's the response, and then there's a question. Let's look at these. The plea, starting in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Often, I feel like the disciples get a bad rap, and we unfairly criticize them. Mark says this boat was nearly swamped. It was almost full. The disciples couldn't bail fast enough. They couldn't get it empty. They knew that the boat was seconds away from being filled, and they were about to die. Several of these guys, like I said earlier, were professional fishermen. They've seen their fair share of storms. Clearly, there's something different about this storm. Out of the Synoptic Gospels, Mark seems to convey this plea, this request of the disciples, in a much more blunt, almost rude fashion. I think it's typical of Mark. He's a little bit quick, just get to the point. Uh, but here, the, the disciples, it's, uh, in Matthew and Luke, it's much more formal and prayer-like. But here, it's, it's harsh. It's, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? We're going to die. I think this is an echo. This is, this is a, it's a tie to uh, a psalm that was regularly recited in the liturgy in the synagogues of Jesus' days. Regularly, they would recite this psalm. Psalm 44, verse 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. The Jews would, would pray this regularly. They would recite this as part of their normal gathering. Awake, O Lord. Why are you sleeping? Everything is going wrong. You're sinking. God seems to be asleep absent, unaware. If you loved us, the disciples were saying, you wouldn't let us go through this. If you really loved us, you wouldn't, we wouldn't be about ready to sink. If you loved us, you'd be lifting, uh, you would not be letting us endure this storm. I think this is where the first century Jewish people found themselves. How long, O oh Lord? That was their prayer. Awake, I don't know about you, but I kind of sympathize <laughs> with these guys. Like, Jesus, what the heck is going on with 2020? Uh, it seems like the perfect storm. There's panic, misinformation, 
plagues, riots, racism, economic disasters, isolation, loneliness, not to mention the normal everyday storms that we face day in and day out. So how does Jesus respond? His response. Let's look, let's look at this. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus is calm. He's cool, collected. He rebukes the wind and the wave. That, that word rebuke is, is a, it's a tie to when he cast out the demon earlier. It's a very clear, like, connection. It's like there's a demonic power at work. And he says, peace, be still. Literally, that could translate as shut up and stay quiet. Now, I've always thought this was a bit fascinating because for me, I would be like, whoa, prayer works. I prayed. Jesus responded, now it's smooth sailing. But that's not how the story goes. Jesus turns to his disciples then and he says, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? See, I, I think I would attribute the answer to my prayer as an example of how much faith I must have had. Apparently that's not the case. Can you imagine the disciples, what they're thinking? What do you mean? Why are we afraid? We are afraid we were going to drown. We're on this boat because you said you want to go to the other side, and you're sleeping. You didn't even seem like you cared. When Jesus questions them, it's as if he's pointing out the flaw in their logic. He's like, your framework is completely wrong. Sometimes storms come. We know that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. Stuff happens. But the safest place in the world is to be in the will of God. This is the crux of discipleship. This is what we're after. They needed Jesus. They needed him to do things. And he just wanted them to trust him. Their idea that if Jesus loved them, he wouldn't let bad things happen is wrong. He can love somebody, and still, bad things can happen. Storms can, can come, and they do come. But he is God, and he knows better than they do or than we do. We see in the sleeping Jesus that God very often seems to take his time when it comes to storms. Things will not always happen the way that we thought they should, or in our timing, or in the, the way that we think they should happen. But God has complete power over the storms. Even though he has complete power, he doesn't always act the way we think he should act. This is how it works. John 16, Jesus said, I have said these things, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Those two things are not, they don't cancel each other out. 
in this world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. If you have a God that's big enough and powerful enough that you can be mad at him because he doesn't stop your suffering, then you also have a God who's big enough and great enough to have reasons that you can't understand. There's a famous hymn that was written in response to a storm like this. In the 19th century, Horatio Spafford, he lost his four daughters on an ocean liner that sank in the Atlantic. His wife was with them and she survived. She sent a message to him, a wire, saying, saved alone. Here was a storm that completely overwhelmed him, crushed him. The story goes that he was on a ship to meet his wife after the tragedy. And as he's on that ship, he's wrestling through what had happened. The first stanza of the hymn goes like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Here's a man who has learned to trust God in the midst of the storm. But unfortunately, there's forms of, there's a form of Christianity that actually encourages and promises a life of continual success, excitement, and growth. This will not only lead to frustration and despair, it actually points people, I believe, towards a, the entire wrong goal of the Christian pilgrimage. The question is, is it enough that Christ goes with you? Is it enough that he's there with you? We cannot judge his care for us, his love for us, nor the state of our discipleship by the roughness of the seas that we travel. We are to, as, as Paul says, to rejoice in the Lord, not in the circumstances, that are in front of us. So hear the words of Jesus here. Do you still have no faith? The other gospels, uh, Luke and, and Matthew, translate this, where is your faith? By asking this question this way, I think Jesus is prompting them to see that the critical factor is not the strength of their faith, but where they're putting it. It's object. Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for their lack of knowledge. However, he does for their fear. The Greek word here for fear means to lose heart or cowardice. The real threat to the faith comes not from lack of knowledge, but from doubt and fear. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, commenting on this passage, says this, Faith is a refusal to panic, come what may. Faith is incompatible with anxious fear. They don't work together. Another way to put that is that anxious fear is a sign that faith is not operating in our heart. If we're worried about what's going on and what's going to happen next, worried about what tomorrow will bring physically, emotionally, economically, socially, whatever, if we are prone to panic and worry, like things are out of control, 
If we feel weighed down in any of these ways, Jesus is calling us in his word right now to a faith that resists fear like this. If you look through the scripture, the most common command over and over and over we find in scripture, the most common command is do not fear. I, I take my kids every once in a while rock climbing and uh, I've actually I've introduced a lot of people to rock climbing. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's, it's humorous, the people that you think are, uh, they seem fearless until they have to hang on a rope. And uh, it's always funny to see how people respond when they first need to trust the rope. It doesn't really matter how you feel about the rope. In fact, the more questions that you ask, how strong is it? Can it hold me? Is it attached right? The more fear, the more fearful you become. All that matters is that you're attached to the rope. The rope is there to hold you, and Jesus is like that rope. If we are in him, no matter what comes, we can trust that he's in control and he will accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. Third thing here, this question. Look at verse 41. They were filled with great fear. They said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? This is interesting because they're actually, the, the, the word here, they're filled with great fear. It's like a, it's, it's an increased fear. They're actually more fearful now than they were when they thought they were about to die. And this is how Mark ends this story. I think this is the main point of the story is that Mark, he doesn't end his story with a calm sea. Mark ends his story with a clear realization in the disciples' minds that the one who commands the wind and the waves is standing in the boat with them. And they're in complete awe of him. These disciples, these these guys are Jewish men in the Jewish mindset. There was only one who had power to command the wind and the waves to be still. In the ancient mindset, The seas were known as an unstoppable force, a symbol of chaos and destruction. Only God could tame them. Let's read this out of of Psalm 107. I think this is, is telling. Psalm 107, starting verse 28, 31. Then they cried to the Lord, that's that's Yahweh. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Does that sound like the description that we just read in Mark 4? It goes on. Then they, will, then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord, that's Yahweh, who did this for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. So on that boat, on that sea, the disciples, these disciples realized only the Lord, only Yahweh God can speak to the storm to be still. 
Only God can speak and hush the waves. Only God can quiet the waters. Only God can bring his people to their desired haven. And at this moment, on that boat, these disciples realized the man standing in the boat with them was God. This is why the disciples are actually more afraid now than they were now after the storm stops. They're more afraid than they, when they thought they were going to die because the ship was sinking. All in a moment, there's a sense of clarity overwhelms the disciples. The man in the boat with them He's the Lord of Psalm 107. He's the creator God. Tim Keller said it this way. I thought this was really good. This is what he says. When Jesus was with the Pharisees on the Sabbath, he said, I'm not just someone who can instruct you to take rest. I'm rest itself. Now, by his actions here, Jesus is demonstrating, I'm not just someone who has power, I'm power itself. Here is the Son of Man of Daniel 7 that destroys the beasts that come out of the water. Jesus is Yahweh. This completely blows the disciples' grid. This is Mark's mic drop moment. If Jesus is the Lord of Psalm 107, what is he doing? Where is he going? What, What is he doing next? I love the opening of Psalm 107. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and the north and the south. This is the Lord. He is good. He is gathering in his people from all over the earth. He is drawing all mankind to himself. He's on a mission to make all things new. And he's inviting us. He's inviting his disciples to join him in that work. He says, we're going to the other side. It might not be what you thought it was going to be. It might not look the way you thought it was going to look. There might be storms. But we're going to the other side. I'm reminded of the words of the beaver and the Narnia story, talking about Aslan the lion. Said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Because he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. This is our Jesus. He's the king. He's good. But it might not look like you thought he was going to look. So as we end this morning... My challenge for you this week, I just want to challenge you. Spend some time in Psalm 107. Just go ahead and meditate on it. Meditate on who Jesus is. If you find yourself in this season struggling with fear and anxiety, I think Jesus is inviting you to be with him, to trust him. I'd encourage you to spend some time this week with a brother or sister and ask for prayer. Ask for accountability for your thoughts. If you're struggling with fear, don't do it alone. Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Let's put our hopes in him. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's good. Let's set our eyes on him. Amen.